All right, I'm Cameron. Hey, I'm one of the leaders here at Christ Community Church. It is a joy to be with you this morning as this is a sending service for Brian and Mandy Stock and their girls as they'll be moving on to Malaysia sometime in the next month or so. They've got a lot of details they've been working out, but it's a gift to have them here with us this morning. And the weather, from what I can tell, is clearing up enough for us to be able to do the picnic at the pavilion, which will be better for the kids to have some room to roam. Uh, and so you just need to grab lunch and meet us over there. I think some desserts are being provided. And so uh, it'll be a joyous time for us to fellowship together after the service. But the focus this morning is on God and his love for us. We're in John 3:16 uh, through 21. So if you would be turning in your Bibles there. And as you're turning there, let me give you the key truth that I want us to all walk away with this morning. God calls us to declare his redemptive love for the world through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Let me say that again. God calls us to declare his redemptive love for the world through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's word this morning, this is John 3, 16 through 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so we're in a text that we're all fairly familiar with, and oftentimes that familiarity can blind us a bit. And so my hope this morning is that we will hear afresh, first and foremost, of God's great love for us. There is no other fuel that we have to do anything that the Lord asks us to do apart from his love. There is no way for us to keep his will, to keep his commandments. There is no way for us to do anything pleasing to him without first having been loved by him. That has to continue to cause us to pause and give thanks and be in great awe. That God would love people like us who are constantly failing him, ourselves, our friends and family. Uh, that he would love us when we were enemies. Right? He doesn't just, he doesn't say, hey, you guys prepare for me to come. Y'all get good enough and then I'll show up. No, he showed up in the fullness of time. Uh, he showed up when it, was, when it was ripe for the Savior to enter the world. And you remember how the Savior was treated. Right? We, we heard that through the Easter series as we were in the Gospel of John. He, he was not well loved. He was not well listened to most of the time. And yet, for love, God came to redeem from those who were already condemned. And so that needs to be, first and foremost, foundational to us. And that needs to move us before anything else does. Before you hear any word of what you ought to do, you need to hear of what already has been done. And so, as we look at this text, let me ask you a question. What do you love so much 
that you would give up what's most precious to you to save what you love. What is it that you love so much that you would give up maybe a freedom? A freedom of some kind, and most of us love freedom. I don't know of many good red-blooded Americans that are anti-freedom, uh, but, but we love freedom. We love to be able to do what we want to do when we want to do it. We love the fact that Christ has set us free to be able to enjoy the good things of this earth. Those are great and wonderful truths. But you can sometimes love freedom so much that you're unwilling to give it up in order to love someone else or for the good of someone else. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a resource of some kind. Maybe, maybe you find your resources so precious that you struggle to part with them because of what you love, for what you love, right? Uh, maybe maybe it, is, it is some sort of thing that you have that you've worked to gain or that you've built up or that you've invested in that you have sacrificed either your children or your family or your friends or the gospel itself, would you give it up if it meant that somebody's eternity was at stake? Now, here's the good news. Let me, let me give you, well, this is some of the good news. Jesus doesn't call for us frequently to, to, to give up everything in the sense of if only you give up everything and suffer, will you be pleasing to me? Was that the requirement? What you are called to give up, he will replace uh, in, in plentitude beyond what you can comprehend. In fact, part of our problem is our own value system. We value the wrong things. And we're going to see that in the text. There's a, a set of values at war here. Those who love the light and those who love the darkness. And so we need to be careful that there are not things that we are holding on to. In fact, I would argue even though we are a materialistic society, I doubt material is what it is that we're holding on to that's keeping us from sharing the love of God with others. I bet it's something deeper and darker than that. But we'll get to that as we go on into the sermon. Now, as we look at this text, we need to remember the context. Jesus has been talking with Nicodemus. And if you remember this story, Nicodemus doesn't come to him in the daytime. When does he come to him? At night. Why? What is Nicodemus? Who is Nicodemus? Well, he is a religious leader who doesn't want to be associated with Jesus just yet because it's dangerous. And he doesn't want to, to, to be seen asking questions of, of Jesus. And so he goes to him under cover of night. Now, that's very interesting given what's being said in this text about lovers of light and lovers of darkness. And so Nicodemus asks a very important question, like, what, what must I do to have eternal life, if you remember? And, and Jesus expounds it to him in a way that was a, a bit of a riddle to Nicodemus. He told him he had to be born again of water and spirit. And you remember, Nicodemus was confused. He's like, whoa, what are we talking about? Now, we can, we can hear that and think it was metaphysical confusion, right, that he was confused because he's like, well... I'm not real sure how to reverse the process biologically. And I'm not real sure what you're talking about. But you remember Jesus took him to task. He said, you are a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things. Because they had been made plain in the Old Testament. See, Christ had been made plain in the Old Testament. And so he was essentially saying to him, you're looking for the wrong kind of Savior. You're looking for someone who will give you the rules and you get to decide 
what you will opt into and out of. Which I'm worried that's what most of us are looking for. That we're looking for a, a set of rules. I say this often about pastoral ministry. Pastoral ministry is kind of people coming to us going, hey, tell me what to do, but you better not hold me accountable to it. You better not come back and ask if I've done it. But tell me what to do. So I can choose whether or not I want to be part of this or not. And so this is the context. And then Jesus here uh, breaks out in a, a greater explanation of why it is that, that those who believe in him who will be lifted up, much like the serpent in the wilderness, if you remember when the people were attacked by the fiery serpents, and there was a, a pole lifted up with a, a bronze serpent on it, and that, this is a very interesting story because you're talking about somewhere maybe upwards of close to 2 million people on the plane. How tall of a pole would this had to have been? Which shows you the effort that has gone to to redeem the people of God. The condescension of God to reach and save his people. And so, here Jesus makes very clear, for God so loved the world. Now, we struggle uh, in the West to sometimes make a distinction between how the Bible flows between terms. Because we also hear in 1 John that you ought not love the world. You ought not love the things of the flesh. You ought to be careful. with You're in the world, but not of the world. And so here, what's being spoken of is not the world in its fleshliness and fallenness and sinfulness, but in its image bearing. This is a reference to uh, people those who God has created. So God loves the people of this world so much that he gave his only son. Now, this is, this is maybe a little bit lost to us in our culture, but in their culture, you would have to understand most of the ancient Near Eastern religions, child sacrifice was a critical aspect of holiness. It was a critical way in which you could uh, in some form or fashion, show your devotion to that Near Eastern God. And so this is why the story of Abraham and Isaac is so important to the gospel, because here uh, Abram shows his faithfulness. He's willing to do what God told him to do, even though it sounds terrible, and he is, he is grief-stricken to do it. And yet the Lord shows, I am not that type of God. I don't require your children for me. And what we see here is he will give his son for us. This is absolutely earth-shattering in their culture, that a God would sacrifice his own son to save his enemies. This should strike us. That you are not being asked to give up your hand or your arm, or your eyes, or your legs, or your own flesh and blood. You are not being asked to place any of your children upon the altar. It is God who sent Christ, his son, as sacrifice to rest upon the altar. To serve as the sufficient sacrifice that would atone for, that would settle his wrath toward our sins, past, present, and future. I am persuaded, the more I go in pastoral ministry, that that's the thing that we just don't believe. That, that ultimately, what we struggle with is that it's almost too good to be true. Right? It, which is why we struggle in the direction of licentiousness. Well, 
if all of my sins are forgiven, past, present, and future, and I don't have to worry about that, then I'll just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow I get to go to heaven. Is that true? Is that the gospel? No, but you can understand why we wrestle with that because we're people of extremes. And then there's the other direction where it's like, well, there's no way that can be all the way true. This is where the legalist comes in and says, there have to be, there have to be some rules, right? Like this gift is too wonderful for us to just squander without there being some rules, some requirements. And so the legalist also struggles to understand. And then there's others who say, this is just too wonderful for me to believe. I don't trust you. And that's what we're going to see about the people who love the darkness. One of their problems is they think it's a bait and switch. They think that God is just saying, hey, 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 come, come on out into the light. It's going to be fine. Your, 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 your works will be exposed and they'll be forgiven. And they're like, Mm-mm, don't trust you, dude. I think what's going to happen is I'm going to get out there and you're going to make an example of me. You're going to destroy me for what I've done. So therefore, uh-uh, I'm going to remain in darkness. And unfortunately, think about how the witness of the church too many times has confirmed that suspicion. Think about how we treat those who oftentimes, now it's not all bad news. We, we, we around here actually do, I feel like, a pretty good job in this. It's going to always be a struggle to, to love people who are sinful, is it not? It's going to always be a struggle to walk with people who do these incredibly crazy things to themselves and to their families and to other people, right? But, but it's what we're called to do. And so, so unfortunately, though, the, the broader witness of the church too often has been the bait and the switch is actually the thing you ought fear. And so this is why it's so important that for us, as we deal with our not yet believing friends and neighbors, that the first thing that we put before them is not what they're doing wrong. Can they even understand that? Do they have eyes to see and ears to hear that reality? Or do they need to first know that God so loved the world, that he sent, he sacrificed, he gave up what was most precious to him, his only begotten son, we cannot know the holy grief that the Lord experienced as Christ suffered in his humanity. I only know what I feel as I hear of what Christ did for us. I can't even imagine if it were my child bearing it. And so this is the message that we have been given because it is the message by which we have been saved. And notice what it says. It says, he gave his only son that whoever earns him, is that what it says? No, it does not. Whoever is, is better than their, at least better than the neighbor. You know, it's the, the joke is, I don't have to outrun the bear. I just need to outrun you. Um, and, so, and so we kind of have a theology of outrunning the bear or outrunning you instead of the bear. I just need to be a little bit better than you. And, and therefore, that makes my sacrifice acceptable. Remember the story that starts the whole biblical story in a sense where you're, you have two brothers, Cain and Abel. One sacrifice was acceptable to God, the others was not. When Cain discovered that his sacrifice was not acceptable, did he ask, how can I make it acceptable? How can I be pleasing to you, O Lord? Did he cry out to the Lord to, to, to redeem him so that he would be acceptable? No, what did he do? He killed his brother and figured, well, 
if there ain't no competition, right? So no, what it says is those who believe, which again seems way, it just seems too good to be true, doesn't it? That all you have to do is believe in Jesus. Well, let's, let's qualify here. Believe that Jesus was a historical figure. Is that enough? No, Tom Holland from The Rest is History believes that Jesus was a historical figure, but he doesn't know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Is it enough to believe that, that, that some of this might be true? Is it that you have to have a certain set of doctrines in place? Do you have to have the doctrines of grace understood before you can be a Christian? <laughs> no. We better hope not, because I'm not convinced that we still understand them. Because of how we live some. And so it's, it's important that what we see here is that we believe that Jesus, number one, is the Son of God. And that we believe that he came to redeem us, to forgive us. That, that he came purely because of God's love. Notice, there is no other qualification here. God chooses to love those who bear his image and sends his son to redeem them for the forgiveness of sins. Let's not miss this. You are not, you are not redeemed because you're a good speaker. You're not redeemed because you're a compliant person. You're not redeemed because you keep the rules. You're not redeemed because you don't keep the rules necessarily. It is nothing competitive. It is purely God's will which is incomprehensible to us, as we look around this room, we should be astonished that he would gather the likes of us. That he would choose to place his glory in earthen vessels such as us. And that, that he would say it's, it's really a surrender. This belief is not even a work. It is a giving up of your selfish rule. It is the submission to the lordship of Christ as king, but even more, Christ as savior king. Hail to the Lord's anointed, the great David's greater son, who came in the time appointed, his reign on earth has begun. And so this, this belief leads to eternal life. Again, think about it. All right, so if, if we do the math, if we do the cost-benefit analysis it just doesn't make sense, does it? It just doesn't. This is why the, the, the parable that Jesus tells, beginning at the end of Luke 14 through Luke 15, he tells it in four parts, is so astonishing to the hearers. Remember the woman who finds the coin and throws a party. Does it make sense that you find a coin and throw a party that is worth more than the coin? What kind of foolishness is this? And as the Pharisees stood there, they're going... Yeah, this is the dumbest stuff we've ever heard. And Jesus says, I know. Because your, your thinking has not been redeemed. You're working on an economy that you can't see what's breaking in. You can't join the party because you are still operating as if you're better than everybody else. You're still operating as if you can earn your salvation or God's love. No, God bestows his love in great mystery upon those who bear his image, right? And so this, this goes on. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. This is a very important point. Jesus doesn't come to condemn the world. Does he come to judge? 
Yes, but that is actually a revealing of what is already true. See, God, unlike the other ancient Near Eastern gods and even the gods of the other religions, he's not carrying scales and weighing our deeds or in some other capricious fashion choosing, yeah, I kind of like you, you've got good hair, I kind of like you, you're a nice person, but you I don't like, I don't like the cut of your jib. That's not the way it works. This is not that, that, G, that everything was neutral and then Jesus shows up to weigh the scales. That's critical, but I think sometimes we function as if everything really is neutral. And there's a set of scales. A set of scales for those who vote right, those who give right, those who act right, those who talk right, those who look right. And a set of scales for those who don't on any of those issues as determined by modern Pharisees. And so, he says, he didn't send his, his son of the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him, condemnation had already been unleashed. Adam unleashed condemnation on us all. We have furthered that condemnation through our sinful, selfish desires and actions, and even our best deeds, as Isaiah would tell us, are but filthy rags before the throne. Even our best efforts add to the condemnation. Consider that. So as we deal with our unbelieving friends and neighbors who don't yet believe, how are they, if what we come to them with is, hey, you got to get the scales right first. You got to get some good deeds going, right? You got to clean up that language. You got you to clean up, you clean up that drink and you got to clean up that dance and that smoke and that playing cards. I sound Baptist all of a sudden. Uh, you you got you to get all these things right before God will love you. And think about how we do this in, in, in engaging with ideas in the culture. Some of the discussions that we're having politically are essentially calling for someone to behave in a fashion that they cannot behave apart from being redeemed in Christ first. Our expectations of the lost are so distorted because we ourselves don't wholly believe that we're loved. It's just a little bit too good to be true. Sometimes. And he goes on to say, but in order that the world might be saved through him, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. This is the point I was making. It's so critical that we recognize that the Lord who grants the light of Christ to us, that we not put that light under a bushel. Now, in, in Brian and Mandy's, in, in their family's case, they are called, granted, and, and, and equipped to go. Right? They were first called to India, and the Lord blessed their ministry for a number of years. And in his great mysterious providence that I do not understand, they were called out of India and now are being called to Malaysia. But God has given them an affection for those people and that circumstance that ought be very encouraging and exemplary to us. Now you could say, well, if God would send me somewhere, I'd love better. Um, I don't think so. It's not the location that's the problem. You see, for, for, I heard Mo Leverett say this one time, the safest place for you to be is God's will wherever he calls you. So if he calls you into the suburbs, then, then, then you, you got to love. 
And you've got you to share his love with the people of the suburbs, whatever they may be. If he calls you into an inner city circumstance, you've got to do the same thing. If he calls you to have five children in a homeschool, guess what you've got to do? You've got to share the love of God with your mission field and those in your spheres of influence. And so we, we need to be careful that, that we don't kind of create hierarchies of God loves these folks more because they're going further away. No, he has given them a Holy Spirit-filled love that, that fuels them to go. And amen. And it will be that same love that will help them in the dark of the night just as it did when they were in India. Praise God. We get to be part of that sending. But as we stay... We also have the same calling. That this love that has been granted to us, we love first because we have first been loved. Remember the two great commandments, love God and love your neighbor as you yourself have been loved. This, if you want to find why in the world am I struggling to love God and love neighbor, look long and hard at what you think about your belovedness. Look long and hard about how forgiven you think you really are. And as Josh encouraged, one of the easiest places for you to look is which way do you run when you sin? Because if you don't go boldly running to the throne of grace, you do not understand how deeply you are loved. And I would love for you to know that. To know that you don't have to go clean anything up, get anything right before you come. You can't get anything right unless you come. That is where you will be equipped to get those things right. Amen? To Jesus. And so, Brian and Mandy, you're going to go to the people of Kuala Lumpur who are from many nations. C consider the staggering number of opportunities that they will have with people from many nations, many cultures. They, they would be broken by trying to figure out how to say it just right to all those different cultures if they didn't believe that the love of God could be shared with any image bearer from any place and the Spirit will make it true. And the same is true for us. So you, you need not fear your, your neighbors who think different than you. It's not that you've got to figure out, all right, how in the world am I going to talk about gender? How in the world are, am I supposed to reconcile gay marriage? Uh, how, how can I reconcile, can someone be a Christian and vote for Trump? Can someone be a Christian and vote Democrat? How, how do I reconcile those things first before I have fully understood that I am loved and share that as forward? Where that becomes the more important thing because the answer to those questions comes out of that reality. You understand? Because so much of the, these other questions is people's unwillingness, the struggle really is people's unwillingness to bend the knee to Christ as king. They would rather bend their knee to earthly kings and queens and every other category. Because they, it's just a little bit too good to be true, isn't it? And so he goes on. Because he has not believed in the name of, uh, of the only Son of God. This is the condemnation. So consider this for a second. Of all the things he could have said that make you condemned, of all the things that he could have said that are worthy of judgment and your perishing, to believe the name of the Son of God? What? What does this even mean? Well, what it means is, you do know Christ is not Jesus' last name? 
We probably would do well to say Jesus the Christ because it means he's the Messiah. He's Lord of all. He, as Paul just explodes into in Colossians 1, he is the creator of the universe. He's the one who holds all things together. So when we believe in the name of Jesus, this is the entire freight of that reality. That Jesus isn't just some historical figure. No, he is history. He is the fullness of time. He is the fullness of who we can be as redeemed people. He is eternity granted to us. Remember, we are clothed in his righteousness, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. We are not being unclothed further. No, death is being swallowed by life. This is what Jesus the Christ means. This is what we are called to believe in, that we are forgiven purely because of the character of God, his steadfast love imputed to us in and through Christ. There is nothing else to believe to gain eternal life. And and, and like I said, isn't it kind of astonishing that we're going, I don't know, sounds too good to be true. I feel like even in our evangelism, even what we would share with our friends and neighbors, we think we got to have more than that. We, we think we got to have something a little sexier than that. Something a little bit like maybe an outline or something. Something that rhymes. Right? Instead of just the pure. And, and listen, you can't just say this to somebody if it's not coming in and through you. Right? Like there's no delivering this message if you've seen the movie Saved, which some years ago uh, this young lady is evangelizing this group of people who don't want to be Christians. And she has a Bible and she tries to give them a Bible and they won't take it. And as they're walking away, she hits them in the back of the head with it. (laughs) It was a gift, you idiot. No, that's not evangelism. And so this this is why it is so important that we delve into what does it mean for me to be loved of God? What does it mean for me to be redeemed in Christ through no other purpose than God's will? What does that mean for me? How then should I live in light of that? All the other apologetics, all the other techniques fall before the throne of Christ. And so we need to believe that we are forgiven and then display that forgiveness. Remember, this gets said many times. How many times should I forgive somebody? Seven times 70. You can't count. Who should be forgiven? All who sin. Now, that's gotta be, that's, that sounds too easy. Right? That can't be right. But it is. It is the gospel of the forgiveness and love of God. And he says, verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light, which in John 1 is Jesus has, is the light and life of men. The light, being Jesus, has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Again, they, they don't believe, they don't want Jesus because they genuinely love deeply their evil. Well, what is evil? Well, anything that, that contradicts the, the law of God, which is relational. So there's great cost. So they love hurting themselves and hurting other people more 
then they desire to be free of that guilt and shame and burden. Instead of becoming a, 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 an ambassador of reconciliation. And it says that for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Notice, this is the which way you run question. They don't want their deeds to be known. Because they feel like if, if you really knew me, you would hate me. You would judge me. Which is one of the reasons why we are good church folk. We don't really share. Even though James tells us, confess your sins to one another, eh, not so fast. Because we, we, we think that there's stuff we got to earn and maintain instead of being fully free in the gospel to recognize which way we can run and that we ought to be ambassadors of pointing the direction of which way we ought run. How often do we counsel people unwisely in behavioral or sin modification? Instead of calling them, you, you got to get broken before the throne before we talk about next steps. There are no next steps. you got to get with Jesus. you you got to have the Spirit break you. And then you will have ears to hear and eyes to see and understand God's love for you. This is how powerful is the gospel and how powerful is, is sin and death. He says, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now, you may be thinking, well, wait, what of sin? What if I sin? Like, how, how am I supposed to? Well, the, the works that are in God is when you sin, you bear fruits, fruits, plural, in keeping with repentance. This is to have sin transfigurated into a work of God. Right? Just as Christ's crucifixion, that which was meant for evil, God took and used for good. You don't think he can do that with your minuscule peccadillos of cursing someone out in the privacy of your own car as they cut you off. You don't think that he can't deal with, with your short temper? He watched his son have his beard ripped out, be slapped and told to prophesy. And he transformed that. In fact, even transform some of those people. You don't think that he can do the same with your sin and the power of the Holy Spirit? Again, I'm not encouraging you to sin. I just know you, you will. And when you do, you ought to run because God loves you so deeply. This is not a cheap love. He gave up his son for us. This is the gospel, the message that we carry that it is about the forgiveness of sins. Think about how this ought to transform how we deal with each other. Should we break fellowship as easily as we do because we got offended? Is there no place for forgiveness and change of behavior and fruits in keeping with repentance? Is, is the valency of the bonds between us so, so poor, so weak, that it would take but a word or a bad day or a bad interchange to ruin what Christ has done to bring us together? I'm not saying you can't ever leave the church. I'm not saying you can't ever uh, uh, reach an impasse. You can. But it, we ought to fight much harder toward each other than we do away from each other. Because of what God has done in condescending and coming to us, this is the message that we all carry to all of the places where God is, has sent and is sending us. What a gift that it is that there is no hierarchy. 
There's no one who is more beloved of God or less loved of God. It's just we are all loved of God where we are called, and may we be faithful with the things that he's entrusted to us. Listen to what Leon Morris says about this. He says, God gave the Son by sending him into the world, but God also gave the Son on the cross. Notice that the cross is not said to show us the love of the Son. No, but, but it's the love of the Father. The atonement proceeds from the loving heart of God. This is very important that you hear this. It is not something that is wrung from him. It is freely given by him. I do not understand it. But I am so thankful that this great mystery is true. And he goes on to say, His love is not vaguely sentimental feeling, but a love that costs. God gave what was most dear to him. So what has God given to us that we can freely give away for the eternal good of others? Do you not share because you just don't think you're quite good enough? You're not, you're not in the right like discipleship headspace. When are you ever going to be good enough? When are we ever not going to be fearful and ashamed and, and arrogant and trying to build a platform? And when are we ever going to be good enough? And is that what people really want? Someone who's super awesome, that makes them feel terrible to share the gospel with them? Or would they rather a fellow pilgrim who says, hey, when, I'm, when I mess up, you point me to the same place. And when you mess up, I'm going to point you to the same place. And let us use the means of grace to remind each other of who and whose we are, beloved of God. And so may we all recognize that this, this, this is our, all our missional charter. Every single one of us in varying forms and fashion is called to share this powerful truth and word indeed. This is what should be coming out of us. This should be our hospitality, the love of God. This should be what we are trying to help our unbelieving friends and neighbors understand because history is ever-changing. It is a shifting sand. Being on the right side of history is the most foolish notion anyone's ever come up with. The right side of history is Christ. Be in Christ and that will reconcile all other things. And that doesn't come easy, right? It's not something cheap. But do remember this, that God calls us to declare his redemptive love for the world through, life, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Not through right thinking, not through right logic, not through right voting, not through the right reading of the right books, not through the right reading of the right websites, not through the right tweeting, none of that. What we are to share is Christ. And I'm persuaded that I don't think there are enough minutes and hours in any given day to exhaust that. Because the love of God is not something that is even comprehensible. It's depth, it's width, it's height, it's breadth. We're sharing something that's eternal. All right, so I'm going to open us in prayer, and then Cliff's going to pray, and then Stacy's going to pray, and then Philip's going to close us, and then Brian's going to lead us in communion. Now, if it looks like we don't know what we're doing, no, we don't know what we're doing. <laughs> and that's beautiful, right? We're handling eternal things. No, we don't know what we're doing. We are earthen vessels uh, and, imbued with glory. So the best thing we can do at this point is pray. Don't you think? 
Father, thank you for the gift that is before us, the gift of uh, the Stock family and the, the example that they have been to this church, the gift that they have been to this church, uh, just in how they have loved when they have been on furlough and how we have heard reports of their love for their friends and neighbors when they're on the field. We give you great thanks for your mercy and your kindness and your healing to them, your patience, your steadfast love, that, that in, in almost a year's time, they get to go back and do what you have equipped them to do, what they love to do. And they get to do it in a, in a wonderful place where they will have access to even more cultures in the city center of Kuala Lumpur. Bless the work of their hands, establish the work of their hands because of your love for them. May what, what pour out of them is the gospel, the person and work of Jesus Christ. I pray you would give their entire family many, many, many opportunities to taste and see that you, in fact, are good. And we pray this in Christ's name. Okay, it's off. Father, I just thank you for this family, for the stocks, for our ability to come in this moment and share this time of sending them off to a new field, to new opportunities for your love to be shown to those you have called them to. I pray that this time would be redeemed, that so often we get ahead of ourselves that in the moments leading up to their departure and on their way and as they establish roots and new community and new culture that you would keep them in each moment and help them to be faithful, to be in your spirit, to recognize their ability to serve you in all of them. Thank you for the witness of this family. Thank you for our opportunity to be a part of, a small part of your great commission and sending and supporting and following along with their mission. Help us to be mindful of their journey and our ability even in distance, to support them and to the best of our ability, equip them with gifts to love those around them. Thank you, Father, for this time. Thank you so much, Father, for calling the whole Stock family, really, uh, to serve you in Asia again. Thank you for equipping them with, you know, their unique gifting to serve in this context. Thank you for giving them a love for these people and for preparing them even now uh, for all the various situations and contexts that they're gonna be in. Um, Father, also just thank you, um, you know, for Brian and Mandy's marriage, uh, for being laid on a foundation of your son, Jesus, and um, thank you for gifting them with their daughters, Lydia and Molly and Isabella. I pray that you would just provide wisdom for them as they parent them in this new uh, context. And I pray that they would just all cling to you as their savior, as they have um, throughout their time in India and their time here. I pray that they would just continue uh, to seek you 
I pray that you would give Brian and Mandy wisdom as they teach them your ways and lead them in your paths, Lord. And Father, I also want to ask that you would um, provide specifically a home for them in the city center that would be affordable and well-situated and just a place where they could be hospitable to their new neighbors, a place that would also be a place of rest when they are weary, where as a family they could gather around and cast their care on you. We thank you for all your provision for them. Father, as we heard in the sermon this morning, the safest place for us to be is in your will. It does not guarantee that there will be no suffering. In, in fact, Father, we know that there will be discomfort. There will be times where we'll be, we will have to suffer and we will sacrifice. And Father, I pray that for the Stock family as they um, head to Malaysia, Father, that um, they'd be confident that they are safely in your will. Father, that when circumstances are difficult, when, when things are, are maybe not going the way that they would uh, think they should, or they, when they're maybe suffering, Father, that God, you would encourage them to remember that they are safe because they're in your will. Pray, Father, that you would um, go before them. Father, that you would be um, setting the path clearly for them as they transition. We pray, Father, for uh, for Lydia, for <clears throat> Molly, for Isabella. We pray, Father, that you would be with them in, in their transition. You would uh, They would be encouraged, Father, that they would um, make new friends. Uh, Father, they would have an opportunity to connect and enjoy being in a, in a new place. We pray, Father, that you would allow us as a church body, Father, to be active in ministering to them through prayer, through financial support, through encouragement. Father, that we would um, see what they're doing as an extension of Christ's community, uh, that they are part of the mission that, that we have here. And Father, that we would be able to be an encouragement to them and that we would be able to rejoice in um, the, the things that you're going to do there, that we would, when, when things are going difficult, Father, we would grieve with them. Father, we would be able to just be uh, unified with them in the, in, the, in the calling of what they, what you have for them in Malaysia. And we ask this, Father, in Christ's name.